right, everybody, welcome, welcome here to show 126 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Mashinskis, your host here, uh, actually from Spain right now, a lot of traveling for all of us. Joined here by my co-host, uh, Michelle uh, Keto Miner from Nadal, uh, from from France. Michelle, how you doing? Hi, guys. How are you doing? Fine. And also our uh, other co-host, Alec Harris from Halo Privacy in Eastern U.S. Alec, what's up? Fellas, how's it going? Very good. Very good to talk to you, as well as our special guest today. Uh, sure, uh, basically all of you know him, Bitcoin Core developer, open timestamps, uh, blockchain consultant, advisor to many Bitcoin startups and companies. Uh, and I actually very happy to talk with him about the situation in Ukraine today. Peter, Todd, Peter, thanks a lot for joining us and welcome. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, I, I just want to set the tone for the show here. Uh, it's interesting, you know, I'm I'm not on Twitter too much, but since uh, February 24th, I've been on Twitter like nearly 24-7 and not Bitcoin Twitter uh, anymore, but U- Ukraine uh, Twitter. And I've been actually interested to see that a lot of the tweets that I like and retweet are ones that you like and retweet. I see that on my feed. And I think it's there's an interesting thing going on here, particularly if we address or talk about the Bitcoin space, in my view, uh, where we have uh, Bitcoiners who are very fond of, you know, the uh, don't trust verify ethos, which we all uh, take very seriously, no less you, uh, a, a very well-known, you know, Bitcoin skeptic uh, and just skeptic of a lot of things that's going on in the, in the uh in the crypto space and very, you know, big fan of uh, don't trust verify. But here we have this ethos that in my view is kind of going a little bit too far uh, with Ukraine. Now we on this show have a lot of uh, ties to Ukraine. I have friends uh, in Ukraine. I know friends that their family has died already in Ukraine. And it's very, very serious. Uh, I think you're pretty much on board with perhaps most of what I'm saying, but I guess that's kind of where I want to set the tone for this show. Um, I have some specific tweets and things to talk about, but I, yeah, I guess just to, just to kick it off, uh, what do you make of, uh, what's been happening in Ukraine since February 24th? Well, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it, the, the big, biggest picture thing I'd say is like, this is a good example of how, you know, there are people who are contrarian, but not clever. Mm. And, you know, I think, I think a big issue here is like, it really is true that the world is full of lies, you know? full of deceased, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And don't trust verify is a good ethos tab. But the problem with don't trust verify is often the verification is, yeah, the guy told the truth. And, you know, if you go into this saying, oh yeah, everything's obviously false, you're going to come up with the wrong conclusion sometimes. And I think that's what being contrarian rather than clever actually is. You know, there are cases in the world where things are kind of black and white and, you know, this is good versus evil. It doesn't often come up, but it sometimes does. And if you're actually clever about the world and smart and you analyze things properly, sometimes you're going to go with the majority. And I think a lot of people have a problem with that. A lot of people were, uh, they like, they're so disillusioned with, and I'm particularly addressing, I've talked about this a lot on the show before, but a lot of people in the U.S., they're so disillusioned with the U.S. empire, they're libertarians, the classical liberals. They're just so disillusioned with it that they're pretty much convinced that the U.S., is uh, you know the U.S. foreign policy, U.S. empire is the the root of all evil in the world, without really knowing anything about the history of the Soviet Union, about Russia, about Putin, about how he's nationalized you know the media uh, since the beginning. I mean, he took Berezovsky's channel in 2000, he took Kuczynski's NTV channel, both which have been critical against Kremlin since 
maybe a year after that, Kordakovsky, the richest man in Russia, put in jail uh, just because he didn't like him and he spoke out against his administration. So there's a lot of things that people have no idea what's happening in Russia. What do you think about this sort of, uh, I guess I'm just reinforcing your your first answer, but I like what you said. You know, it's one thing to be contrarian. It's another thing to uh, trying to be clever about it. But what do you, what do you think about uh, those points? Well, you, you know, I think you know, what's actually happening within Russia isn't actually that relevant for the rest of the world to care about, uh, you know, in the war with Ukraine. Because, I mean, all those considerations, they're all kind of more, you know, nuances of strategy of what it would take to go change the situation with Russia, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think the point I would make is none of that actually matters that much, given that the world has kind of agreed you don't invade other countries without damn good reasons. And even if you take what Putin's saying at face value that, you know, Ukraine is full of Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. Sorry, but that's not a justification to go and invade a country and then go bomb civilians. Like, it's just not, you know, and for so many people are kind of disillusioned about American foreign policy. You got to kind of ask them, okay, well, if you're disillusioned about American foreign policy, doesn't that mean that Russia doing, you know, what you're arguing, the same thing that America does is still bad? Like yeah. that disillusion shouldn't translate into, okay, no, we'll support them or we're going to turn the blind eyes. No, the disillusionment at the very least should say, hey, we fucked up here. You know, we should do better the next time. Like it's, yeah. I, th- I think it's just, it's disillusionment turning into apathy and rather than quite rightful disillusionment turning into, well, the world needs to be a better place this time around. Yeah, it's basic, absolutely basic. Yeah. I want to do one more here. Uh, I, I was on, or I guess Saul was was uh, copied on an interaction he had with Bruce Fenton on Sunday, but it was interesting. I'm not going to read it like word for word. People can look it up. Uh, but this was, I believe, maybe hours before the Bucha mass graves, uh, the yeah. massacre, which there were rumors about before. I believe it was hours before he probably knew about it. And yeah. uh, he said he said something to the effect of, and he actually said these words. He said, I have no idea what is going on? And you yeah, responded, yeah. you responded, we're well past the point where yeah. it's even sane to say you have no idea what's yeah. going on. And then he asked you, what are your sources? So what would you say to this level of skepticism? Well, yeah, and, I, and I think something I said there, um, which I think is very important is this is very different from COVID because in COVID we could go take official reports, you know, official statements coming out and say, hey, these statements contradict what you're saying. You know, you didn't actually need to be skeptical about sources with COVID very much. You could go take, you know, what health organization around the world had published, basically at face value and assume, okay, this is roughly correct. But even then, now what you're saying, you know, contradicts your own published science. You know, you didn't have to get skeptical about sources. You didn't have to imagine grand conspiracies. It was just very easy because it was like, okay, yeah, these sources contradict one another, end of story. And in the case of Ukraine, well, you know, what data do we have coming out? Well, we have tons and tons of video and photo evidence that individually, yeah, it's theoretically possible to go fake. And, you know, some of it probably will be. But the masses and masses of it, you know, there's no, there's no reason to go think every single bit of this is fake. You know, there's no reason to think every single person you go talk to in Ukraine is lying about this. You know, I personally know. The number of people in Ukraine. And that's enough to say, oh yeah, the basic thrust of this is obviously correct. You know, it's, it's it's just very clearly that Russia invaded, you know, another country 
and that they've done things like killing large numbers of civilians. The exact details there, some of it may turn out to be true, some of it may turn out to be false, but they're already well past the point where they're the bad guys. Yeah, it's ex- it's extremely worrying for me and, and just disheartening, especially to see like classical liberals, people that are supposed to stand up for private property, uh, you know, human rights, right to life, that they would take sort of this sort of skeptical contrarian view. I think it's damaging to the brand. I think it's damaging to their credibility. I think it's very, yeah. very disappointing. Uh, I, I would say, and I say this a lot, and you can comment on it or not. It's not exactly a question, but, um, you know, again, again, this was hours, I believe. That interaction with Bruce Fenton was hours before the Bucha massacre came to light. Since then, you know, we've had, so you have mass graves. Before even that, you had deportations. Uh, yeah. And you possibly have the use of chemical weapons now. And you have rapes. You have rapes. Now, yeah. All, of, yeah. all of those things, all of those things happened in mass, definitely at a, much larger orders of magnitude scale in World War II in Eastern Europe. But I always tell people, like, if you are wondering how you would react to Nazi deportations or Soviet deportations, either one, they both were sent to camps. I have relatives that were sent to camps. If you are wondering how you would react to these types of deportations in World War II, you only need to look at your thoughts and your words and what you're typing on Twitter at this very moment. This is yeah. how, this is what I tell people. Yeah, that's that's uh, absolutely true. And, and you know, like it's I think it, it's to a degree playing up the same way. Where again, you have skepticism of getting involved in the war. You know, in World War II, that was absolutely true. It took quite a while for the U.S. to get involved, and took quite a while for a lot of countries to get involved. And gradually, just more and more evidence kept coming out that you know this is just not something you can not get involved in. And it's, you know, I think it's playing it the same way where, again, the, you know, U.S. and other countries, well, what are they doing to stop the war? Well, they're shipping in tons of weapons. You know, that, that's how World War II played out. And that's looking like how it's going to play out in Ukraine. You know, hopefully it ends sooner than how World War II played out. But I'm sorry, you know, these, these things happen. And you don't really have good options here to just stand on the sidelines. You know, it, it amazes me how people go make the claim that, you know, Russia is worried about NATO getting onto their borders, yet we've got Russia invading another country, which if they win, will basically mean NATO is on yet more of their borders. Oh, and it's happening. Sweden, Finland, yeah. it's happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what do you make of that narrative? So, uh, and I think this is a largely Western narrative, but it's, uh, you know, it's NATO's expansion, NATO's encroachment that put Russia in an existential risk uh and they you know had no choice but to lash out and you know defend their previous territories uh, i've seen this on twitter i've actually seen it in mainstream media uh what's your counterpoint to that well you, you know all you got to do is just look at the official sources from russia to go and get an idea of how likely it is to be true and the fact of the matter is those official sources like things putin actually says and so on don't really talk about nato very much you know, this is much more about some existential crisis of, you know, Russian identity and, you know, having Ukraine break away and et cetera, et cetera. Like, there's lots of reasons here. And unfortunately, also, I think people forget that some of the reasons aren't likely to be that rational from the point of view of Russia as a whole. Because after all, Putin is separate, you know, from Russia's interests. And, of course, part of why Russia is so corrupt is because the government in, you know, beyond Putin is separate from Russian interests. So it shouldn't surprise me that they would be happy to go fight wars that don't really make that much sense. 
to yeah. go and serve their own interests. You know, we don't need to imagine like this being rational and this being what NATO or so on. We just need to think, well, okay, they've got some fucked up politics here. And you just go read the stuff coming out is, I think that makes it very clear. So uh, what would you say to, and this is kind of a similar narrative, right? That, well, in 2014, when the Russians annexed Crimea, you know, the world didn't react in the same way. And but now things are being blown out of proportion. And, um, you know, this, I, I see these are very two, two very different things, but there's some equivocating between the Crimea annexation and the invasion of Ukraine. Well, I, ironically, I mean, the fact that NATO didn't react to Crimea being invaded goes and shows you how NATO is a self-defense pact. Yeah. You know, NATO is not interested in invading other countries willy-nilly. You know, NATO is interesting in protecting the interests of NATO. And, you know, unfortunately, like, as Ukraine has found out, Ukraine isn't actually that directly related to the interests. So, in Russia, certainly isn't. So, they're not going to invade Russia just for the hell of it. You know, NATO is not interested in doing that. Of course, now that countries are getting invaded, people are very interested in joining NATO for the obvious reason that it's a self-defense pact. You know, if Sweden joins NATO, they're agreeing to contribute their military forces to when some other country, you know, gets invaded and vice versa. It's as simple as that. And of and course, the second reason being, well, the more countries are in, you know, in NATO with more military equipment, the less likely any of them are going to get invaded. Like it's, this is not very complex. Yeah. And on top of that, another reason why, the whole narrative, this armchair, you know, Eastern European expert, which everyone on Twitter suddenly somehow is, that this is all NATO's fault. Uh, yeah. NATO has never, ever uh, even entertained the option of a country joining their ranks if they have a conflict. And so, yes. I mean, Ukraine has had a conflict for eight years. We've been up, I mean, in Eastern Europe, we've been up in arms about it for eight years. NATO hasn't done anything, but the US had a security obligation in the Budapest Agreement. The UK had an obligation. They failed on those. But it just shows like it has nothing to do with NATO. And, and ironically, uh, well, not ironically, but interestingly, I've been, you know, watching this a little bit. Russia is moving towards the border of Finland. I mean, it just shows you like they know the rules of the NATO accession agreements and if Finland and Sweden try to get in. It's something to watch over the next uh, weeks. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would not surprise me if uh, Russia did, so, you know, did some minimal, you know, started some minimal conflict with those countries yeah. just for the sake of trying to technically block them getting into NATO. You know, yeah. like I, I don't yeah. think it would be a full scale war because they just don't have the resources anymore. But you know, if they lobbed some missiles one way and sent, you know, a couple hundred troops in like that just wouldn't surprise me just to, you know, create that technicality to then not, not let them get into NATO. So what do you, um, what is the likelihood that this, the arming of Ukraine and the training of Ukraine and, and the, all of the support that flows both monetarily and, and in terms of equipment and material across the border it eventually gets interpreted by the Russians as, well, NATO's at war with us by proxy. Well, I mean, NATO is at war with, the, you know, with Russia by proxy, and that's okay. I mean, you know, being at war with another country because they're, you know, attacking one of your allies that's kind of how the, that's kind of how things work, you know. It doesn't mean that they're intending to invade Russia. No, in fact, you can you, you see this in how and maybe a bit of background. Remember that in modern warfare, very frequently the only way to defend yourself is to do offensive actions, 
And that really comes down to like the physics of how weapons work, which is that, you know, we just do not have the ability to defend against modern weapons. We defend them, you know, we defend against them by eliminating them to begin with. You know, like think of it this way, like it used to be in the time of castles, you know, you could build a castle and all of the weapons available couldn't, you know, couldn't break through the walls in a reasonable amount of time. Like castles, for the most part, were not taken. They were, they were besieged. And eventually the people inside would starve and then they'd surrender or, you know, something like that. But very rarely did you do an offensive operation to take castle. And modern warfare is very different where modern warfare, like no matter how strong your bunker is, there's a weapon that can go destroy it. So the way you fight modern warfare is you go shoot down things that come in over the air and you prevent the ground forces from getting close to you by doing offensive actions against them. And sure enough, this is really hamstrung Ukraine because NATO countries are not sending much in the way of offensive weapons. You know, they're sending things like javelins, like anti-tank weapons, you know, anti-aircraft weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those things aren't that good for retaking territory. Yeah, well, that's part of the criticism, excuse me, that's part of the criticism of some of the aid. Um, but so you bring up an interesting point that uh, it came to light when the, that Ukrainian raid of the Russian fuel depot occurred. And then I've seen some anecdotal reporting of sort of anxieties along the Russian side of the border of Ukrainian incursion into Russia uh, as a counterattack. And which, I think which is the only at. way you. Yeah. And, and importantly, that's the only way Ukraine can realistically defend itself at war of this scale. Now, had this played out a little differently, had say Ukraine simply halted these advances, then they went on to, you know, diplomatic talks that were actually, you know, fruitful, this could play out quite differently where, you know, they'd make some agreements and Russian troops would pull out. But since the diplomacy isn't working, even though people are obviously trying quite hard at this, since it's not working, the next step for Ukraine is to keep doing counterattacks, go pushing Russia further and further back. And some of those attacks will have to be with, on Russian soil. And NATO is currently not providing the weapons to do that. You know, that, um, that attack on the fuel depot within Russian territory, that was claimed to be done with helicopters, which makes sense. You know, you fly in helicopters, you know, supposed to be you fly in two helicopters very low so that they could sneak past the radar and other anti-aircraft defenses, fire off their rockets and head back. Those were Ukrainian helicopters that Ukraine had prior to the war. I, I don't know to which extent it's true, but I've read somewhere that the reason no country is sending offensive weapons is that that would involve them as an active participant in the war and de facto enter the war. Yeah, I mean, I think like there there is an argument for that too, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, the fact that countries have been, you know, so dis... I mean, I, I think we're kind of in agreement and I'd say like, the fact that countries being so disinterested in sending those weapons really shows how reluctant they are to take any action that's an invasion of Russia, you know, including by proxy, which, you know, gets back to the point of, well, why, you know, this narrative that Russia is worried about getting invaded by NATO is just silly. So what about the uh, nuclear option? Just to ask you, I mean, uh, you know, do, do you do you sleep the same at night? Are you worried about something like that? Uh, do people have it way wrong or some people have it right in the press? People that talk about how Russia may uh, respond with nuclear or chemical weapons. Well, 
I mean, first just of all, generally, chemi- just generally, like, yeah. 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 Well, well, first of all, I'll say chemical weapons are not a problem for the rest of us. You know, there's there's no chemical weapon on Earth that's effective enough to truly threaten the rest of the world on a big scale, because you know, chemical weapons are good at certain things, but they're just not good at killing very large numbers of people very far away from your home country. Now, nuclear weapons do a great job of that. But the issue I think Russia faces is, by all accounts, the U.S. ability to do a second strike, that is, to go respond in force against any you know, use of nuclear weapons on U.S. soil or their allies, is huge. You know, If Russia crosses that line and triggers that kind of response, Russia's gone. And I don't mean like gone politically. I mean, the country will probably go collapse because so many of their cities will be destroyed. And from, you know, publicly available information on this, the U.S. is focused entirely on nuclear weapons designed to destroy cities and designed to destroy very big um, installations because it's meant to be a second strike force that you hope to never use. Whereas Russia, by contrast, is actually um, deployed much smaller nuclear weapons that you could and maybe go use on a smaller scale, hopefully without provoking response. So, you know, long story short, does the West need to go worry about them ending up in a nuclear war with Russia? I think not, because the game theory plays out, that there's just no reason to trigger that. Ukraine, on the other hand, is another question. Yeah, yeah. well, and so uh, I think that the game theory around a sort of a large nuclear strike is very kind of obvious and both sides have, or all sides have dead man switches, right? So even if, if everyone in Russia is dead, they can still fire nukes and vice versa. Uh, but the, uh, I, I, Well, uh, one, one thing I should comment on that is that the, at least the publicly known information about those dead man systems, it's not that, you know, nuclear weapons start flying if everyone's literally dead, rather that, the ability for the lower level commanders who actually, you know, are stationed at the facilities with those nuclear weapons, including submarines, they have the ability to do these, to do actions that they otherwise wouldn't once communication systems go down. And like, you know, there's a distinction there. It's like basically the Russian land-based systems, you know, they do not have the, like individual people on the ground do not have the technical capability to actually launch a nuke without authorization. You know, as far as we know, that's, that's how it works. And the, the purpose of these dead man systems is to give them that ability if certain events happen. But it's not to go launch off the missiles immediately. It's rather just to give lower-level people in the hierarchy the ability to do something. And that's, you know, and that's very important because it means that if Russian, you know, if internal Russian politics don't play out that those low-level commanders want to use the nukes, that, you know, they won't necessarily start flying. And, you know, that, that's very useful. Yeah. Well, and so um, the, this sort of like lesser nuclear strike or sometimes it's called a tactical nuke or a battlefield nuke. Yeah. I think that's the challenging game theory, right? Because yeah. uh, what, what is the proportional response there? And I don't think anyone has the answer. Well, I mean, an open question there is, does the U.S. even have the ability to do a proportional like, like if, if you're, if you think, like, you know, let's do a hypothetical. If you think a hypothetical response to Russia using a small nuclear weapon on, you know, Maripol to go and kill the remaining defenders, if you think the proportionality of that is for the U.S. to use a small nuclear weapon on some Russian military facility, 
as far as we know, the U.S. doesn't have the technical capability to do that because they just don't have small weapons in service. Now, they could do a much bigger strike on something, but you know, they, don't, like, they just do not have the weapons in service to do a sort of tit-for-tat escalation. So I, I honestly don't know how that would play out. Um, you know, I, I think one way it could play out is the U.S. responds with conventional weapons. You know, it's really hard to know. Yeah, well, let's hope we don't get there. Um, yeah. Some of these game theories, you know, are better left for philosophers uh, than generals. Yeah. And, you know, I think, like, the way the, the rest of the world should be thinking about this is these scenarios where other countries get dragged into war are just not that likely because we do have good nuclear defense in, you know, in the way, in, in the form of uh, massive response. And so long as countries don't escalate things in ways where the lower level commanders on the ground want to use them, you know, it's quite likely that the way this would play out is, you know, Putin, even if he gives order, nothing happens. You know, like as far as we know, Putin does not have the take the technical capability to cause nuclear weapons to start launching on their own. He always has to work in conjunction with actual troops on the ground. Yeah, and the and the so-called back channels between the U.S. anyway and Russia, yeah. and yeah. um, yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. that's maybe one we can. We don't yeah. have to hurt our heads too much more on now, but yeah, yeah. that's interesting thoughts. Yeah. Uh, I want to bring it back to, uh, to to Bitcoiners again, I guess, to uh, to classical liberals, to people that want to do something. I mean, I'm telling people to donate. I'm telling people to educate yourself about it. Uh, you know, retweet things that you know are verified by five other people. It's quite easy. Um, I, I just want to go back to kind of how we started the show on that. I mean, are you are you hurting your head uh, with some 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 Bitcoiners that just aren't really, like you said, trying to be too clever and contrarian to see just actual truth? Well, you, you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm not surprised by this, and I think one reason why I'm not surprised is I've run into a lot of them who just believe total bullshit about 9/11. You know, and, and I think there's a lot of overlap between the people who would be convinced that 9-11 was a controlled demolition and the people who'd be convinced that, you know, massacres aren't happening in Ukraine. And, you know, both cases, the, you know, the situation is kind of similar, where you've got something where the contrarian view is to go opposite what the conventional belief is, yet the evidence is overwhelming. Like, it's just, you know, with 9-11, like, even if it's a government conspiracy, it doesn't make any sense to use a controlled demolition. That's crazy. You know, it, there's, it's unquestionable that planes hit the World Trade Center. You know, it's, that's completely unquestionable. Well, if you're going to do that, why on earth would you take the risk of having a bunch of demolition charges in a building? You know, they could fail and then be discovered. It's just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But, you know, people just kind of don't don't think critically about this and don't put themselves in, you know, like they don't truly put themselves in position of thinking, how would this even work as a conspiracy? You know, they just hear something and kind of think, oh yeah, that sounds kind of cool. That sounds, you know, contrarian. That's, you know, that sounds kind of true, but you gotta, you gotta think through how this stuff actually works and what's likely to be true or not. You know, like I'm sure we'll find out that some of the atrocities alleged by Ukrainians were, were false. But so what? I mean, that happens always in war. You know, some people lie. 
like all you need to know is the bulk of it's probably true. And you know, that, that's enough there. Yeah. And, and I think we're, I think, you know, some Ukrainians, I know many as well. Yeah. Uh, it's important. There's a well lot of them in to, Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is. And it's important just to try to speak to them, try to understand, yeah. you know, even it's very famous and it's very true, you know, Ukrainians that are related to Russians and there are a lot, you know, yeah. especially if you know, there's an old babushka or someone in St. Petersburg. I mean, She's going to only believe what she sees on Russian state-controlled media. And if you think you have state-controlled media in the United States, like if you think those few oligopoly channels are state-controlled media, I mean, you haven't seen anything if you don't speak yeah. Russian. I mean, like that, yeah. it, there is only one voice. Yeah. And, well, and that voice in, in, is In particular, the, the internet is, you know, much more censored in Russia than anywhere else. You know, like it's, it's, it's hard for you, you know, Russians to actually go and access a lot of the resources that we normally would, you know, not impossible. Like, uh, again, China is yet another level where it's quite hard in China to use VPNs and Russia, you know, it's hard, but some of them work. It, and, but, you know, if you're not going out of your way, it's, it's hard to kind of see some of the resources that, you know, you'd otherwise see here. But, you know, in terms of family ties, I, you know, I think you're quite right. Like I, I literally know someone who actually has a Russian passport to, you know, for, by birth, et cetera, et cetera. But they were in Ukraine their entire life. And due to the war, this has actually been their first chance to then get out of Ukraine into Europe. Because, you know, the Polish border, they're accepting Ukrainian refugees. And even though she had a Russian passport, they, you know, looked at her doctor, okay, obviously you're basically Ukrainian. You've lived there your entire life. We'll let you in as a refugee. And sure enough, she, you know, goes, goes off to, uh, her parents' place in, uh, you know, in Europe, and her parents being Russian and going and, you know, being exposed to all this, they refuse to believe that there's a war on. Yeah. You know, that's their own daughter, and they refuse to believe it. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah, it really happens. It really happens. Yeah. And people... Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about the, uh, if you looked at a proportion, my my general sense, I've heard this, uh, because many people say, you know, the, the polls are higher than ever for Putin. People are supporting the war more than ever in Russia. Uh, my sense is most people aren't responding to those surveys. Uh, the one thing I heard uh, as of last month, one of the surveys was there was maybe 3,000 respondents that said, you know, they support the war. Because of course, if you're asked the question and you even say war or you say you don't, you have risk of going to jail yeah, <laughs> in Russia. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. one. That's yeah. one. It, it, it is this, not possible right now to do honest surveys in Russia. It just isn't. Yeah. But but even on top of that, as I heard on this BBC interview, is that the numbers are something like 3,000 might respond. Yeah, maybe 80% are going to say because they don't want to say otherwise. But then you're going to have 30,000 that didn't even respond. They didn't want to yeah. take the survey. They don't yeah. want to get in the, in the crosshairs. So I think yeah. I think that's a big part of it. But I don't know if you have any other sense yeah. from people you've talked to about why Russians seem to well, sort of go along with this. Uh, unfortunately, I think while... So, you know, the, the surveys say things like, you know, 80, 90%, whatever the number is exactly, of Russians support the war. Now, I suspect, on the other hand, that that number is not close to zero. It's probably in the double digits. It's probably like 20, 30%. Yeah. And, you know, and I say that because I just know of too many stories of people, if, you know, of Ukrainians whose family in Russia or, you know, outside Russia, but, you know, Russia descendants do support the war. Like that is a very common story to go here. And I see no reason to think all these people are lying to me. 
Now, does that mean, you know, every Russian is like that? No, but, you know, double digit percentage is probably roughly correct. And it may be even higher than we think, you know, people, like, and, and I'd say part of the problem with this is that because Russia's borders with the rest of the world have been relatively porous for decades, there's been a long, long opportunity for people who do not support Russia to leave. And that changes their composition of Russian society to be more and more extremist. So speaking of game theory, if you're the CCP and you have design, <coughs> designs on reclaiming some of what you perceive as your territory, like Taiwan, and you're yeah. watching this, uh, is this emboldening? Is this a, you know, hey, rather than invade, we should go with a longer arc, you know, Hong Kong uh, strategy? Or what, what do you make of uh, this as you look eastward? Well, I mean, I think we've got two main classes of answers to this question. And the first one is to assume they're rational. And if you assume they're rational, they're probably looking at Russia's failures in Ukraine and thinking this might actually be a much tougher fight than we expected. Like part of Russia's problem appears to be that they, you know, the last time they fought a real war on a big scale was basically World War II. And it looks like they're finding out the hard way that their military just isn't as good as they expected. Now, it's not completely ineffectual. And, you know, Ukraine, I think at this point, does stand a real chance of effectively losing this war. But it's going much worse for Russia than they expected. And in the case of Taiwan, you know, not only do you have this problem if you're trying to invade a country, but you're trying to invade a country over, you know, over a distance in the ocean. And that is very hard to do. You know, it's exceptionally hard to do. Yeah, so they, China, yeah, so, so I say, you know, China could be looking at this rationally and thinking, well, you know, even if we get Taiwan, we're going to destroy it in the process. And what's the use of that? Yeah, um, the, their military is very well armed as well. Uh, and yeah. they have very modern and advanced weapons. Uh, and they've, been training for this for a long time. But I also think a rational response is, well, if you're the CCP, when you do go get Taiwan, you better punch a lot harder the first time. Yep. Yep. And that, that then comes to, I think, well, the sort of more irrational side of that answer is they could be looking at this in saying, well, you know, even if we don't succeed or so on, like this, this sort of feels like good opportunity. And, you know, I, I can imagine a lot of people within, uh, you know, within China, you know, China's political system, like amping up expectations, particularly to the extent that Russia is winning, or at least to, to the extent that they think Russia is winning. Like this, this is an ugly thing. And I, I really caution people who look at all the Ukrainian successes and say, oh, yeah, obviously they're going to win. Because an outcome of this could easily be that finally a stalemate's reached and Russia takes a bunch of territory that in the process being destroyed. but you know, that can be played off as a win. And that could embolden China for sure. Well, I mean, clearly the Russians are willing to play off anything as a win because they, yeah. they played off their retreat yeah. from Kiev as a win. Yeah, um, yeah. Hey, so forgive me, guys. I'm going to leave all this running uh, and I, I have to jump. But Peter, pleasure to chat with you. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll thank catch you. up with you later. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Alec. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Uh, do you have any, do you have a little bit more time just to talk about this? Yeah, yeah, I've got more time.
Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the Taiwan question is very, very interesting. I think, as you said, they could uh, Russia certainly could play off a frozen or stalemate or just destroying uh, Eastern Ukraine as a win yeah. and take that territory. All of those things are very, very uh, possible. So yeah, it's very, it's very disheartening, very disappointing yeah. for Eastern Europeans. I mean, for us that you know, I'm, I'm American Latvian, as my listeners know, but you know, we've all of us have been saying for years, like, and especially since 2014, like we've warned you about this. And it's very, it's very interesting to see finally in the US, in Europe, like finally, people are taking their own defense seriously. You know, you got the famous NATO spend 2% of your GDP, which only Eastern European nations do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and, notably, uh, um, Germany made the promise to do that recently. And it looks like the actual spending that's going to happen is still not military related. Like they're, they're oh, still yeah? going to renege on that, even though they said they would as you know, recently as like a couple of weeks ago. Is it just going to be like some tangential defense or? Yeah. I, I don't know the full details, but what I've read on it is basically this, you know, this isn't really meeting up to that requirement, you know, up to that requirement. So they're yeah. still not interested. And yeah, I, I think like, I, I think it comes down to Germany's just culturally seems unwilling to do what it has to do here. Yeah. Yeah, not not surprising and very very disappointing. Uh, they're you know they they just they have so many interests there, uh, you know, from Schroeder on down, and it has been yeah. uh, a very very disappointing thing to see. And and you know, yeah. and even in London, you know, I mean, you know, London grad is the name for a lot of. Uh, actually, I want to ask you this question as well. Uh, talk about private property. Talk about you know this. It's the sanctions question. So. Uh, a lot of history tells us that sanctions aren't actually that strong of a thing. You know, at the end of the day, what wins war is, you know, the will and power and unity. But um, sanctions are interesting. They're happening on a scale never probably seen, I think. I mean, yes, Iran, North Korea sanctioned the hell out of them for years. You know, Western democracies, I guess you could call them. But this is very different, what's happening with Russia. Um, do you have a... My, my view is I'm not really involving myself on the principles. Yes, their funds are being frozen. Yes, their assets are being frozen, not being taken. They're being frozen. But yes, I do. I would like to see more, you know, interaction with the courts and this, this and that. Of course, this is all great uh, marketing for Bitcoin, but let's leave that aside. Um, my view is the best sanctions are these sort of smart sanctions that attack the decision makers and their families who for decades now have been having their kids educated in Switzerland or in the U.S. or wherever. And if you're going to do something, I mean, just block their person from entering. That's the most important thing. Like they won't be able to take advantage of their yachts. They won't be able to take advantage of their of their house. Of course, they can sell their yacht or their house. And, and we've gone above and beyond that, obviously, with the way that sanctions are going. But my, my personal view is if you want to take a principled libertarian, classical liberal stances, the best thing is just, you know, we don't want you in our territory. Like if you're going to do this, you, you're not coming. There's no way you're entering. I think that's very strong and very principled. But what do you feel about all the rest? You know, the asset freezes, the, the seizures, all, all, this, all the rest of the sanctions. Well, it, it's funny. I, I think we actually are completely opposite sides of this. And I mean, first of all, I'll say I think we agree to some extent, which is that sanctions often do very little. but I would say it depends on the type of war that you're fighting. Now, sanctions in a situation where the, you know, where the part of the economy that's focused on war is quite small, 
I think they're not very likely to work because sanctions don't really seem to change the minds of politicians that much. And, you know, they tend to go hurt the people, et cetera, et cetera. But the distinction I would make in this situation is the war between Ukraine and Russia is on a much, much, much bigger scale. You know, a significant fraction of the entire Russian GDP is going up in smoke in, mm. in this war. Mm. You know, this is not a situation where this is some little conflict that, you know, we're trying to stop by targeting politicians. I think the actual way we should be thinking about this is this is the Russian economy funding a war on a very big scale that will need to, you know, get even bigger if they want to win. And we shouldn't be thinking, like, we shouldn't even be focusing on sanctioning individuals. I think that's actually a complete distraction. And I think that distraction is being pushed by a lot of, you know, a lot of bureaucracy that wants to be bigger by getting more and more involved in more and more complex sanctions. You know, I think that's all pretty pointless. I think what we should have done on day one is say, all right, as of right now, all imports and exports to Russia are completely blocked. And we will take efforts to go and, you know, force this issue. Because what you need to do is destroy the Russian economy to get this war to stop. And unfortunately, you know, that obviously will go harm a ton of Russians. But I don't really think, like, there's good alternatives here. You know, we're not fighting a small war. We're fighting a war that could, that already involves, you know, it, it seems to be already involving a significant percentage of the entire Russian military that's on active duty. And if it gets bigger, it'll involve, you know, an even bigger percentage. And their total weapons output, like, you know, literally all the weapons that Russian factories can make are winding up either replacing losses or going off to Ukraine. And you see this because the weapon, you know, the captured equipment and destroyed equipment is actually quite old. Like the, the, there was a wave where there was a lot of stuff destroyed that was fairly new. And that seems to have kind of tapered out because obviously they're pulling in reserves. You know, they're pulling tanks out of storage that haven't run in two decades or three decades even. Like, obviously, they're scraping their barrel to try to get more weapons out. And that means the war is at a scale where you have to somehow shut down these factories. And one way to shut them down is to go bomb them. The other way to shut them down is to cripple the entire Russian economy. Well, which one's more likely to lead to World War III? I mean, just from a pragmatic point of view, yeah, it makes sense to try sanctions first. And if not that, then maybe we start bombing Russian factories. Like, there's, you know, there's nothing good coming out of this, but that's just the reality of total war. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm good with the export import bans as well. I mean, uh, it's, it, it was more a question, I guess, just on the very narrow focus principles of asset seizures, which, you know, you had in the wake of this, uh, you know, you had, you had, uh, not in the wake of it really before this, just before it, you yeah. had Canada, you had Canada freezing assets, you know, of people that were supporting truckers. So it's a very, it's a very, I think it's very hard for Westerners to understand the nuance of this. And like you said, well, it is really not nuance. It's a huge war, 40 million people. It's one yeah. of the, you know, you're on, you're bigger. You're actually about the scale of Iraq and Afghanistan as far as, as far as people go. Well, I mean, as far in, as the Ukraine economic. is a bigger, like Ukraine is more people in Canada. You know, th this is a yeah, war against yeah. country bigger than my home country. <laughs> 10 million more people, right? Yeah. Ukraine's about yeah. 40, Canada's about 30. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, and, it's, and like uh, you like said, 40, 45 versus like 30, 37, I think, if I remember correctly. But yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's bigger than Canada. Yeah. And 20, you know, if you talk about oil, gas, and wheat, any of those things are 25 to 50% of basically any Western country's imports. Um, so it's huge, except for the US, uh, but, but it's huge yeah. as far as Europe yeah. goes. 
well, it, it, the world. And so. a, point, a really key thing is that it looks like the Russian, you know, military economy, they are very dependent on uh, imports from, you know, from countries that can go sanction them. Yeah. Like, it, you know, the, the military equipment that's getting shot down, I mean, really funny example, actually, is the modern Russian drones. They captured one recently and turned out that the main camera in it was a repurposed uh, cannon, like literally a Canon SLR. And they had re, you know, they literally put it right in the, you know, drone body, like put in with Velcro and they go reconfigure the electronics, get the video out of it. You know? Really? Yeah. A consumer camera. And I mean, if you understand the tech, this isn't actually surprising. Consumer cameras are really good. And unfortunately, this also means it's, it's, it's yet another example of how you have to go sanction everything. You know, yeah. all consumer, like, it doesn't matter if it's consumer oriented. You still got to stop it from getting into Russia. You got yeah. to collapse that economy. And hopefully, if you do this hard enough, the economy will collapse and they'll surrender and we can move on with their lives and everyone, you know, everyone goes back to normal. But, you know, piecemeal sanctions on yachts are not going to do this. Also, uh, I agree. Totally agree there. Yeah. I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. Another yeah. point I really want to make is that the oligarchs in Russia, in that, in by oligarchs, I mean the incredibly rich people in Russia who got their wealth by siphoning off USSR era resources. Yeah. They're probably the reason why Ukraine has you know made so many wins because it looks like they've been siphoning off resources from the military. Oh yeah, like and if Bill Russia Browder. wasn't as corrupt, Ukraine would be screwed. You know, those oligarchs with all their yachts, every one of those yachts was built with stuff that's not going to kill Ukrainians. Those yachts were a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Bill Browder has said, you know, um, he said a lot of things about Putin, which are interesting. You know, it's like could be the take was fifty percent, you know, from the early uh, the early uh, negotiations with the oligarchs, but the oligarchs themselves with Gazprom, which is also you know completely nationalized now, but plenty of uh, oligarch interest included in that. You know, he said uh, it should be the most profitable company in the world, and it's not. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. not even profitable, and uh, yeah. all of that is part of the same picture. And I absolutely want to further uh, go on the sanctions as well. Like, I completely think it's great that private companies, you know, companies that uh, obviously they want their best for their customers, but they're looking at this situation and they're going well above and beyond what any sanctions have done. You know, they're pulling out of Russia. That is absolutely 100% in any sort of classical liberal principle, if you want to do that. Uh, That's those are the things I'm trying to think about, as well as trying to educate, you know, Bitcoiners about it's a hard. And, and beyond Bitcoiners, you know, it's, it's, it is a hard sell. You know, it's a faraway place. You don't understand the uh, the implications of all this. It's very, and, and just like we said about the Canadian, you know, asset seizures that just happened before this. It's, it's a yeah. very hard thing to understand uh, and wade through. So, um, yeah. yeah, I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're talking about it here. I don't know. Any other, any other points on, uh, on Ukraine here? Well, I mean, I, I think something I want to say is like, I've seen a lot of sort of libertarian ideals around self-defense in that, you know, we should focus on, you know, protecting individuals and so on. But it's important to realize that a war of this scale, you know, there is no mechanism by which Ukrainian individuals could protect themselves. There just isn't, yeah. you know, it, in that, like it's very important that you now have an enormous number of Ukrainians with guns guarding stuff in Ukraine, you know, like this, this is like, you know, it's, it may seem trite, but those images we saw earlier in the war of the Ukrainian government handing out, 
you know, machine guns like, like candy. That has done enormous good to protecting Ukraine because it means that Russians cannot drop people in behind enemy lines and sabotage stuff. That's incredibly important. Yet, those guns, the sort of weapons, you know, individuals can realistically possess and use cannot, you know, cannot protect uh, against invasion by themselves. And it right. really comes down to the fact that modern warfare, you have weapons like artillery, you have airplanes, you have cruise missiles, you have things that are launched from even hundreds of kilometers away that go kill you. The only way to go respond to this and win, when to even survive, is to operate on many different levels. And that includes the guy on the, you know, the guy with the machine gun preventing a saboteur, as well as the artillery team that goes and moves forward to go and bomb, you know, to use their artillery against enemy forces so they can't come any closer to the incredibly brave pilots who run, you know, who operate off runways of, you know, parking lots and stuff and, you know, highways around Ukraine to then get into, you know, even Russian territory and go bomb, you know, bomb enemy forces. Like you need all these different scales. And it's just not something where a libertarian ideal is, you know, the pure libertarian ideal is going to work. You know, war is yeah, at the scale of governments, and you have to respond at the scale of governments. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point I want to ask you about. So uh, two things. First of all, just a point. Uh, you mentioned it. It's totally true. People don't understand this enough. Like, why are, why, why are Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, these types of countries, you know, Kazakhstan, why are they so corrupt? Why do they have oligarchs? The re and we have oligarchs in the Baltics, too. I mean, everybody knows who they are. They're, you know, holdovers yeah. from Soviet days. The reason is precisely because of bad government, the Soviet Union, uh, you know, a disastrous socialized nationalist economy that once you try to privatize it, game theory takes in. I mean, people are going to people are going to do it better than you. You supposedly everybody had a voucher to take a little bit of piece of every single single state asset. It didn't work out that way. And that's just yeah. it's precisely it's precisely because of the Soviet Union that you have the situation we're in. That's what I would tell libertarians, number one. Yeah. But number two. What is your thought, uh, back to the nukes, back to sort of a general, the scale of this war, um, are we ever going to get to that classical liberal, I don't want to say utopia, but ideal, where we have local defense, local healthcare, everybody's rich. How do we do that in a world where crazy Putin and then the US and you know the UK hold all the nukes? I, I honestly don't think you can. I, I don't think there's any easy path from where we are now to that. And, and it's why, you know, unfortunately, I have to say the same thing for countries to do is in, in the world we live in to go get nukes. Like we're, we just saw it played on Ukraine. Had Ukraine yep. kept the nuclear weapons left over from the USSR, they yep. probably wouldn't be getting invaded today. Yep. It's, it's as simple as that. And it's good for the rest of the world that they gave them up, but it's not good for Ukraine. And that, that is just the way these things play out. And for the world to get to the point where these weapons don't exist, it's just not clear what the political path is. You know, there's um, uh, South, um, South Africa, as an example, they developed nuclear weapons and gave them up voluntarily. But getting to that point is tough, and there, there just isn't a clear path there. And I, I don't know if that'll ever happen. That's fascinating. Yeah. Can proof of work ever be banned? Well, a, I mean, the existence of nuclear weapons uh, kind of says segue. that obviously that can be because the USSR, you know, the remains of the USSR and the USA 
they have had the ability to basically wipe off, you know, wipe human civilization off the planet. And in practice, that means banning proof of work. The question, the real question is, how expensive is it to go ban proof of work? And that particular way is very, very, very expensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I need to say that way. But you saw it in Europe, the, the recent econ panel that oh, actually yeah. tried to propose yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this is more like, can you go ban drugs? And the, you know, the answer to that question, as we've seen, was, well, you can ban drugs, but your ban's going to be porous. And the war on drugs has been very successful in the sense that it's kind of hard to go buy crack in most, street, you know, in most cities, but it's not that hard. Like it's, it's I guess the question but is, it's not a win. I, I guess the question is, is it more or less expensive than sending all the mining cash straight to space? Well, currently with current space tech, it's uh, get, get doing mining in space is not exactly easy. And defending yourself in space is kind of hard, but you know we don't know how that will play out. And and I think the more sort of realistic answer to the question is, well, yeah, you try ban proof of work, and it'll just migrate to countries that don't ban it. And it looks like political appetite to ban it worldwide is pretty low. And this is actually space brings up another verification thing I want to talk about. Like it's you know it's nothing is perfect. Like you know this is precisely because of satellite photos how we could like unequivocally tell Russia that yes, those bodies were lying on the street well oh, yeah, yeah, during your yeah. time of occupation. And, yeah. you know, they're bringing it back to Bitcoin. I mean, yeah, Blockstream has least bandwidth on satellites, but look, if the whole grid goes dark in the world, again, we're going like way, way dark here, but if the whole grid goes dark, it's still a least saddle, it's still least bandwidth that they have <laughs> on the yeah. satellite. So nothing yeah. is perfect here to give yeah. you pure verification. There's just nothing, uh, it's, it, nothing well, is perfect. I am sure there are entities within, you know, Russia's space program slash Air Force who are probably giving Putin options on, you know, what it would look like to go take down, uh, you know, GPS and take down other communication. I mean, especially also take down uh, Starlink. Because it yeah. looks like SpaceX's Starlink is actually doing very real work in Ukraine and not just for civilians. You know, there are military forces who are using it. So... You know, Starlink is now a military target. Will Russia go and take that incredible step of blowing up Starlink satellites? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But, you know, they, they have the technical capabilities to do this stuff, maybe not very quickly, and they may be looking at this. And, you know, there's no real defense against that kind of action other than an offensive war. It could happen, though. A very aside, yeah. sidebar to that, uh, Michelle and I aren't necessarily bullish on Starlink. You know, I mean, the, 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 I think the plan would be just massive amounts of those train of satellites across the sky. Like it, it's, it's just bad for astronomy. It doesn't seem that great <laughs> long-term, but I don't know. I don't know your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I think long-term, well, long-term Starlink is very good for astronomy because we'll have space telescopes, but it's very bad for ground astronomy. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's just the way the world works. Yeah. Yeah, it's also bad for decentralization. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say it's bad for decentralization. I would say it's sort of more just agnostic. You know, it, it, like Starlink adds one more option. And I, and I think the way it adds an option is not in strong competition with other options. But, it, you know, I think the problem there is more just 
there are no good, like the internet is sort of a decentralized network, but it also sort of isn't. And there just aren't good options for this. You know, the, the, like physics is, physics kind of sucks here. So. Yeah. Peter, I'm so glad we had this conversation. I mean, I, uh, I've always been pleased to see what you have been retweeting and tweeting well before this war, but especially during this war, I think your message is very important. Uh, I appreciate you fighting for Ukraine in your own way. We are doing that ourselves here. It's really, really great. I don't know. Any, any, uh, any links anywhere our listeners should go to find out anything more about what you're doing? Well, I mean, there's, of course, my uh, Twitter account, but uh, also <laughs> I, uh, I am on uh, GitHub on, uh, on uh, Peter Todd and uh, my website, petertodd.org, but it hasn't had anything new on it for, for a few years. But uh, yeah, I'll, uh, of course, uh, I'm always uh, hanging around at Bitcoin conferences, so uh, I always recommend going to your uh, whatever Bitcoin conferences you can go find in person. <laughs> well, Honey Badger should be back this year, so hopefully yes, you can Yes, I'm definitely that. hoping to go. Yeah, definitely. Great. 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 Maybe we'll see you there. Thank, yeah, thanks a lot, Peter. Really appreciate your views here uh, and in general and really appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you too. Bye. Take care. Thank you, guys.